You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week, The Equality Issue, with Jason Kelly and Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. So, Jason, it's the golden era of American higher education, yet the benefits of all that education are highly uneven. There's someone working to change that, Rebecca Cantor. She is, and it's an incredibly Mm -hmm. timely uh, effort. I feel like our heads are still spinning from everything that's happened in the news over the last couple weeks. Rebecca is here with us now. She's based in L.A., joining us in New York. Wow. I was blown (laughs) away by this story, by your story. So take us back to the beginning where this idea came from. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me as well. This started for me when I was at Harvard. I was frustrated by my experience there and felt like a lot of the coursework I was doing was very similar to what I'd done in high school. I was privileged, grew up just outside of Boston, went to a high-performing high school where I'd taken a litany of AP courses and was disappointed that what I was doing at Harvard felt like kind of the same brand of memorize and then apply a monolithic layer of critical thinking. As I was kind of reconciling my feelings of frustration during my time at Harvard, I started to think about so many kids in this country didn't have anywhere near the high school experience nor college experience I was having, what was their high school experience and their college experience leaving them ready for? Was it actually preparing them for adulthood, for work, and for life? Or was it kind of just churning them through this this system whose default settings were really oriented around getting an elite few kids like me into an elite set of colleges. Well, and you also went through what your first semester at Harvard, and you're like, yeah, no, I'm done. First two years, <laughs> or first two years. I wish sorry. I was wise enough to, to leave after my first semester, but no, it took me a little longer. You know, there's so much anticipation when you grow up in a community like Newton, where I grew up, or Scarsdale, or outside yeah. of San Francisco. You know, every city has these suburbs where the whole goal is getting into a school like Harvard. And for my family, that was definitely important for me because I'd had such interesting extracurricular experiences during high school, Harvard kind of felt like it left a lot to be desired in terms of my undergraduate coursework. But any in any sense, you know, I was so privileged and started 20 squares ahead, and I don't mean to diminish what Harvard offers at all, but I started to think about what the floor was really like for most high schools in America and what most kids were graduating capable of. And as I reflected on how the system worked over and over again, I came back to this line of code of SAT, ACT, ACT, APs, these college admissions requirements, Mm -hmm. seem to govern a lot more than just who got to go to which school. They seem to have an outsized impact on this trickle down of what high school curriculum is like and in turn what middle school is like and in turn what elementary school is like. And that's how you have, you know, parents on the Upper East Side who are shopping for their unborn child to go to the right preschool to go to Harvard. Well, you also have this incredible industry that has grown up around it, right, of, you know, um, test prep, test prep, books and so on and so forth. Yeah. also find that you have a lot of schools, educational institutions that are teaching to these tests. They have to, right? Especially, you know, as well-intentioned, I think, as the Obama administration was around their education reform, there were some practical challenges that made it really hard to make standards like the Common Core Standards or an act like the Every Student Succeeds Act net better for most American students. And some of the challenges just come down to, we can talk about work skills and life skills, but how do we measure those with multiple choice? How do we measure at scale, where we have millions of students across grade levels, across Mm -hmm. countries with different ability levels, different socioeconomic status. How do you create a test that really reflects all of their progress? And and before we get to what you've created, I do want to just take a step back and talk about your experience having this conversation with your parents, because, (laughs) you know, you have alluded to the fact that where you grow up, 
where we live, you know, we live in the midst of all of this. And it's that time of year where at cocktail mm-hmm. parties last weekend, this weekend, everybody's going to be comparing notes and whose kid got in where. Yeah. And it's part of the world that certainly the affluent uh, live in. So so take us into your house in Newton <laughs> and having this conversation with your parents who had been very supportive of you. And, you know, I think envisioned, as many parents do, that my kid's going to Harvard. This is amazing. Well, it's, all, were, it's all going right. Accepted to Harvard, Princeton, Yale, full scholarship to was it Duke. Duke. And you went to Harvard. Yeah. Well, the funniest part of this was my mom didn't think I was going to get into many of these schools. And so I really like fashion. So we had this bet early on that I could put all these shopping cart fulls of, you know, Harvard apparel, Yale apparel, (laughs) Princeton apparel. And if I got in, then my parents would purchase the apparel. And if I didn't, then they wouldn't. And I got in. So now I have like Yale dad, Yale mom, (laughs) Princeton brother, you know, everything in the book. And the irony, of course, is that I not only did I not go to most of them, I actually didn't even finish at Harvard. But, you know, look, for for my parents, I was a kid who, as you could probably tell from a bit of remission coverage from the day. Yeah. I kind of came out different. Yeah. I would say I'm probably not going to give the comforting answer that most parents are looking for, which is like, your kid's going to be just fine no matter where they go to college. There's some nuance to that. If you're in the top 0.1% of income bracket, your kid probably is going to be fine no matter where they go to college because there's so much of the social fabric of your life that set them on the right trajectory from birth. And by the right trajectory, what we really mean is they're unlikely to fall several socioeconomic brackets during their adult life. If you're a kid who grows up in the lowest socioeconomic brackets, it's first of all, very unlikely that you're even going to make it to one of these elite schools. But if you do, they are entirely life-changing. And so to that extent, those spots really matter for kids who start off at the bottom of kind of society's totem pole. Right. If you're somewhere in between, a lot of the data has suggested that if you're a white male, where you go among the top 300 colleges is less important. If you're anything other than a white male, then it's a little bit more important. And so the frenzy around college admissions isn't crazy. You know, I'm not someone who comes out and says, oh, no, you'll be fine if you go to the community college down the street. You might be. You might not be. It depends on what you major in. It depends on what you started as. It depends on what you want to do with your life. There are plenty of people who do go to a whole range of schools, whether that's a big state school or community college, who are equally, if not more successful than peers who go to Princeton or Yale or Cornell or wherever. But for most people... There is something to be said for the social currency that a lot of these elite schools afford. And that's beyond just what's in the curriculum. It's who you're meeting, the kind of internships you're getting. And I don't think that the conversation around education is usually that nuanced to get to. It's not just about like button chair from 8 to 3 p.m. in courses. It's about the fabric of your community that you're weaving in your early 20s and what that sets you up to do in your later 20s. In many ways, it's the social networks person to person that you're meeting, greeting, and that will be with you for years Absolutely. to come. I always used to say part of why I chose Harvard over other schools, the physical layout of Harvard and like one square mile of Cambridge, you could have Oprah, Bill Gates and Elon and whoever else visiting campus on the same day. Mm-hmm. And because you could mm-hmm. easily go to the graduate schools, it kind of expanded your opportunity for hobnobbing with people who could influence. All right. So fast forward, tell us about, so you're thinking about all of this and you create a company called Embellus. Tell us about this company and what you're setting out to do. So I identified this line of code of college admissions as being very pivotal, not only in determining who gets access to what, but also in determining what schools teach. And my thought was not so idealist to say, if I change out the standards, suddenly all schools are going to teach better. They're not. It's not a silver bullet. I thought about instead 
how do these standardized tests act as a linchpin? How do they hold our schools back? And the determination I made after years of meeting people and reading about various aspects of this kind of high-stakes testing was until you could cut through this layer of content mastery of knowing biology or knowing mm-hmm. history or knowing chemistry as always being the proxy for assessing skills like problem solving or critical thinking or decision making, you are always going to disadvantage poor schools and advantage rich ones. Because rich schools have the privilege of having kids come in who read at grade level, who do math at grade level, who have parents at home helping with flashcards at night. Mastering content and dealing with huge amounts of information they're exposed to is a winning solution for kids who, by and large, for kids who grow up in privileged environments. For poor schools, you know, they're dealt a much needier hand in terms of the, the kids' coming Mm -hmm. in and their reading level, their English language familiarity, for example. So reconciling that plus a textbook of biology they're supposed to plow through for AP Bio is very tough. So I was interested in saying, could we free up a little bit of the pressure that these schools feel? Not get rid of content. It's hard Mm -hmm. to think critically about nothing, right? So you need content. But could we relieve a little pressure to allow for schools to customize what they're teaching, the pedagogies they're using, so that everything students are learning is a little bit more interesting, a little bit more relevant, a little bit more appropriate for one population versus another? And the challenge of building a test like that is you've got to have a test that's generalizable. It can't be like, did you learn this information? You want to have some of that. I want you to be able to read. I want you to be able to do some math in my test. But I want you to really show me that you can think, that you can reason through a situation, that you can develop a a new and novel perspective. Like put things together and figure things out. What we do at work. How do you do a test, though, that figures that out? It's very hard. So I had come across some really nice research that actually ETS had done with... Educational Testing Service. Yeah, the Educational Testing Service had done with an organization called Glass Lab out of EA Mm -hmm. Games. There was a collaboration between several education companies. Electronic Arts. Exactly, and Electronic Arts, working on a educational version of SimCity. You might remember that Mm -hmm. game, The Sims, where you're, you know, building little villages. And I was really interested in this idea that that game had been used to look at systems thinking. This was the first time someone had tried, at least that I'd seen, building a a test that would be used in a state standards in California, for example, was the intention at the time. And that cut across not just, you know, math or science or chemistry, but this idea of systems thinking as a generalizable skill, as a tool that you could have in your toolbox and you might point it at chemistry, you might point it at math, you might point it at work. And that's what I wanted to bring to life. And it's very hard. I mean, developing this kind of assessment is like developing new drugs, except you don't know all the (laughs) compounds you're starting with. You're like going out in the wild and in our case, trying to find corporations who are interested in letting you study, hey, what does creativity look like for your employees? What does problem solving look like? Can we bring that real life definition, that living, breathing manifestation of what work is like today back to the educational context so that our kids aren't learning something, you know, esoterically schemed up by a bunch of professors, but are learning from right. what's actually happening. Because the other side of that is people getting all these great education, spending a lot of money, having a lot of debt. I mean, some people don't, right, have debt, but there are a lot of folks who do come Most out Most do. Right. And then they don't necessarily have the skills they need to enter the workforce. Yeah, because I think the story that people are often afraid to tell is nine times out of the ten, the kid who went to Cornell or Dartmouth or Duke is going to beat the kid who went to a random community college or mm. state school in a you know side-by-side applying for a job type of context. So 
you're dealing with a system whereby there are a lot of, to say the least, entrenched interests on the corporate Mm -hmm. side, uh, which you've started talking about a little bit. But especially, and I feel like this has come even more to the fore in the last couple of weeks, yeah. in higher education, you yeah. know, where there's a system that people are gaming, but there's also a lot of, I'll say it again, entrenched interest, ways of doing things, whether it's the testing uh, methodology that they are literally and figuratively heavily invested in. And you talk it in the story about how this is, this is a long game. Are you seeing any elements of people starting to change their mind at all? Yeah, it's a really apt question. I'd say first and foremost, there are some entrenched interests and some inertia in the system that's really reasonable and that's there for good reason. You don't want just anyone to come in and wipe out tests that have been validated and have been relied upon for decades as a fair assessment of merit. It doesn't mean that everyone agrees, but that is certainly how they've been used. And so you do want the bar to enter this new this new testing arena if we are going to see new tests come into the arena to be high. That said, there are some problems that standardized testing has most recently been lambasted for, particularly in the light of this college admission scandal, that technology can help solve. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, it's kind of unexcusable that it's not at least being attempted mm-hmm. by the major testing codes to use that technology to, you know, whether it's removing proctors or whether it's authenticating that you are indeed who you are. Part of the problem is these tests are still largely paper based. And even if they're not, they're making it onto an iPad where multiple choice questions right. are digitally loaded. And, you know, how hard is it for two kids to scheme up in a room? Hey, I'm going to distract the proctor while you steal the iPad or take a photo on your phone. Like, Kids are smart. And so not using state-of-the-art technology to think about how to keep the system fair, I think, is the first challenge that the big testing codes are going to need to take on and certainly that we've chosen to take on for the start. That, to me, seems like the easy solution. But what about the entrenched industry, the $10 billion industry that has been built around the whole testing services? Yeah. So, you know, I think that there's two pieces to that. One is the test prep industry, which is in the game of giving people an advantage. And I think that also falls on the responsibility of testing providers. Make your test hard to game. Mm -hmm. It's very hard. I'm not saying, I'm not minimizing the the feat of doing that, but we've got to be building with this mindset that what people enter with is already a substantial understanding of what's going to be on a test. And to the SAT's credit, I can't speak as much for the ACT, but for the SAT, there have been a number of studies that show even if you do a bunch of test prep, maybe your score goes up 100 points, but it's usually not so much more than that. There are fluke stories, but in general, it's not that gameable, and that's why you can take the test 12 times. So the standardized testing companies have already done a lot to work on that front. I think the other side of the industry around college admissions testing is driven by demand of what the colleges want. And because our system has seen this this path to American success as high school, then college, then work, the colleges have a lot of sway in determining mm-hmm. what college ready means. Right. And I think it's on employers to help say, okay, great that someone's college ready, but hey, there's a wide range of college quality. To your point, some of them leave people in debt with mm-hmm. photography degrees that convert to nothing, and others leave them you know, at, at Harvard with a philosophy degree that starts at $80,000 a year salary when they take a job somewhere. So Rebecca, so okay, so you're fighting this entrenched system. Tell us about kind of what responses you're hearing, what inroads you're making in terms of trying to change the way things are doing. So I think the ears who this argument 
certainly resonates when they hear kind of the approach of relinking education to employment as employers. There's an interesting, actually, Bloomberg Next poll that shows about 40 percent of students feel they're prepared for work Mm -hmm. when they leave the entire education system. And 40 percent of employers feel that students are prepared for work. Interestingly, 72 percent of college providers feel their students are prepared for work. So (laughs) there's a little bit of asynchronicity in terms of where perceptions are of the value of an educational experience and an employment experience. And it's not unreasonable because there probably are some colleges that do really prepare kids for work and for life. And there are others that really don't. So I think what has to happen now and what we're seeing some positive reception around is employers have to take the lead on saying, here are the skills that are becoming Mm -hmm. more important in an age where human intelligence is involving higher order thinking skills and machine intelligence is doing the lower order ones. We've got to see collaborative problem solving. We've got to see people who can imagine and create. We have to see that people can synthesize quickly with new information, with data, that they can build a cogent argument. And, you know, there's some of that in standardized testing today, but it's kind of this myopic view. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit of argument supported by some evidence. And the challenge is, you know, how often for all of us are we dealing with a static system where everything's written down for us and there are no changing new rules or information? Never. So you need technology that can really bring forward the employer's desires into the education market as a reality in a tried and and tested tool as an educational standard. And that's what makes our job so hard. You know, it's not a quick process to go out and find those definitions of skills that matter. One standardized. No, and then you've got to bring it in. But I would say that argument of bringing the employers into the conversation about how their work is changing, what the future is going to require, and bringing that back, many parents care, you know, and they're choosing that with their dollars. So let me ask you this. You are in the midst of this. You've been in the midst of this of this for a number of years, given everything we've seen over the last couple weeks and everything else. Are we, in your estimation, at an inflection point where something may actually change, where something actually moves? Is there the will out there that you see to really change this system? You know, I think it's a really apt and also uncomfortable question for America to try and answer. And the reason I say uncomfortable is, you know, we don't have a meritocracy right now. We think we have a meritocracy Mm -hmm. because all of our Mm -hmm. kids work hard in our schools. And, you know, oftentimes kids at the top 30 colleges are really smart, high achievers. But I'll give you an example of, of two things we could do, I think, to make the system more meritocratic that make people uncomfortable. One would be to have all of our standards for college admission be based on a relative growth metric, meaning if your floor started lower, your expectations of what you should be like when you're in 12th grade are also lower. If you started 20 squares ahead like I did, then the bar for what you have to do to get into college is that much higher. Now, that makes people squirmy in all angles because it's like, shouldn't all kids, no matter where they start, have the same hopes and dreams and potential? Yeah, they should. But unfortunately, our system isn't delivering that. So thinking about a relative metric, and some college admissions officers are doing this in their head, right? They're looking at your zip code, and they're looking at your race and your gender, and they're making a decision about how impressive what you've overcome is, for mm-hmm. example. But we don't have a standardized but that's rubric. a lot of art, not science. It's a science. lot of art, not science. Exactly. The second thing we could do if we wanted to make this much more fair is 
really think about what we're measuring. And it's interesting because the SAT started as basically an IQ test, literally invented by the same folks who worked on the IQ test and the Army Alpha test around the turn of the 20th century. And it's migrated over the last century along with the ACT towards testing student achievement. The name literally changed from the standardized aptitude test to the student achievement test, right? So when you think about that shift, what it means is more money, more preparation generally means better scores. And that's Mm -hmm. not just in the last mile of your test prep. That's like, were you born into a good school district or did you go to a good private school is you're paying for that compounding advantage for your entire childhood. So if we wanted to try and undo some of the inequality that's systemic in the system, you know, you could look at having more diverse school districts, school zoning that doesn't cut across just one affluent area, but that's more encompassing. You would look at testing skills, perhaps, that could be picked up in a number of settings, not just at school, but maybe at a job, maybe during the summer, maybe something that kids practice in different environments than what they're actually tested in and still their progress shows up. So building that kind of test is what we've chosen to tackle. I think America America has to decide if this is a powerful enough motivation for an inflection point that forces us to say really what would meritocratic college admissions look like. And unfortunately, it kind of makes it a zero-sum gain, right? Yeah. There's only a limited number of spots. And so it's uncomfortable to think, especially you know, as someone who's progressive and who enjoyed my upbringing and was so fortunate to be able to go to a place like Harvard and to apply to these other schools and see them in the cards, you, know, you have to think about maybe I wasn't the most deserving person to go. And for a parent who's worked really hard to get their kids right. to that point, it's a very that's a hard thought, right? right? Yeah. And so I think whether or not we're at an inflection point depends on how honest our country wants to be. So what's your goal or hope with Embellis? Uh, my goal is definitely to set a higher floor for high schools. So know that some schools are going to do a crappy job teaching differently, and it's no fault of theirs. There's all sorts of systemic problems that make it hard to teach. But perhaps if you can relieve a little bit of that pressure around content, mm-hmm. a little bit around teaching so many different modules of AP biology or science curriculum or history curriculum, not get rid of it, just reduce a little bit and focus on a few concepts. Maybe some schools choose to bring that to life with solar-powered go-kart races. Maybe other schools in Pasadena choose to have kids intern at JPL for a couple weeks. Mm -hmm. Whatever the scenario is that's best for those kids, I want a test that we deliver to be generalizable enough that their progress shows up and that we recognize what they have. And it doesn't mean that all kids who do well on the SAT are going to do poorly on our test. I would expect many who do well on the SAT are going to do well on our test and vice versa. But maybe some kids who are total diamonds in the rough who are out there slogging through a lot of content that doesn't land for them. Maybe there's a way to recognize some of the skills they have going on behind the scenes, whether they got that in a, you know, a job after school or watching a sibling or over a summer. I hope that our tests are able to at least set a new North Star for the system. That's Rebecca Cantor, the CEO of Embellis. And what's fascinating, Jason, is really bright, uh, but she is on a mission to disrupt the educational testing service. I have to say, she walked into our studio, immediately sort of captivated us, and we didn't want her to go, in part because what she's doing is so important, and I love the fact that she's taking the long view. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg. 